Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. We are joined by the chairman and CEO of Bank of America. He's Mr. Brian Moynihan. Brian, thank you so much for your time today. So the Fed has made it official, more or less. We need to pay attention to inflation. It's not clear exactly what we're doing, but we need to pay attention to it. And they didn't move anything except some dots on some plots. But uh, were they, did they get it right? Are they reacting in the right way at the right time? Or is it too much? Well, I think, uh, first, David, good to see you again. Let me, uh, I think there's three key points. The first point is about the virus, the vaccines, and the variants. The second point's about the dot plots, but what is the underlying Fed predictions of the economy? And the third point's about thinking about this Fed and where they were in 19. So first point, if you have the three Vs, virus, variants, and vaccines, you really have to listen that they need to see the hole that they were trying to fill between fiscal, uh, fiscal stimulus and accommodation was to put the economy back to where it was and with the same growth characteristics or frankly even better growth characteristics. And if you look around the world, central banks are going to struggle as to when this virus is behind them, because at the end of the day is the, is the determinant here. So if you think about India, think about what they went through over the last several weeks. Think about in the U.K. delaying uh, uh, the full reopening because of the variants. That's the variant question. You think about the U.S. vaccines through half the population, you can see that's pretty open, and the question is, will the variants affect us? So pay attention to the vaccine path. The second question was the dots, as you said, dot plots, and uh, there's great debate whether these add value at this point. When they're put in, they were put in for a different purpose. But leaving that debate aside, the question is, the Fed's economic projections this year are 7%, next year in the th mid-threes. The street actually is 7% matches the Fed this year, but next year, Bank of America Securities and our team there, it's a great team, is at five. And the streets at high fours. If you believe the street and Bank of America are more right as we move through the year, the reality is the economy is growing much faster than it was with much more fiscal stimulus still to be spent in the customers' accounts, much more opportunity for the economy to round out and grow. And that's something people should pay attention to because last year this time, this year's rate of growth was half of what it's turned out to be or predicted to be. So if those economic growth predictions move, those dot plots will become uninteresting because they'll have to move because things will be moving faster. And the third thing is think about 2019. Same Fed, same chair, different, somewhat different people, same research department. They were sitting there mid-2019, 2% 2, 2 plus Fed funds rate, 2% plus 10-year Treasury rate. Economic projected forward growth was 2%. Unemployment in the threes. Think about that where we are now. We got three times the growth rate projected. Next year, even two times the growth rate projected. A Fed unemployment rate projection in the low threes by the end of 23, uh, high threes by next year, and low fours, mid fours this year. Those are full employment. And what was the only thing concerning them in 19 was wage growth. And you're seeing wage growth. So that'll be the interesting tug of war as this thing normalizes. So, Brian, absolutely right. We have a remarkable story and the bounce back of the economy and the growth. But what about inflation? Because they also have taken way up the Fed, their projection on the PCE deflator, 3.4%. Core is 3.0%. What are you seeing? You have your tentacles in to so many consumers as well as small businesses, more than anybody else. Are, are your customers seeing, feeling real pressure from, from price increases? Well, you know, the great debate is, you know, 
what is temporary, what is transitory, as it, SFP, as Tom was talking about this morning, you know, these terms are used to try to signal the, what they think. Right now, the firm belief, I think, by the Fed is most of this is transitory. We'll see. But the question is, what about the stickier things? Wage growth becomes sticky, and you're seeing that come back. And as unemployment rates come down, and you're seeing you know, the, the pickup employment, we'll see what the new claims are this morning, but you're seeing the, the employment market tighten. If you ask our small business customers, last fall, their number one issue, pandemic, pandemic, pandemic. This spring, number one issue, getting people to work and supply chains. That's a whole different place, and that means inflation characteristics are out there to be filled. But is it temporary? Is it transitory? Um, and there'll be a great debate about that. But I think it still comes down to what you think next year's projection for, for economic growth is and what you see in wage growth leading into that as to whether the stickier parts of this will happen. Now, the reality is in our customers' accounts, they still have 65 70 percent of stimulus dollars in those accounts. The average balance for people of two to $5,000 of average balance accounts are up three times and sitting there ready to be spent. You're seeing their spending grow at 20 uh, percent year to date through last through the 14th of June versus 19, not 18, but not, uh, not, not 20, but 19, meaning the, t the normal year, 19, 20 percent growth. That's very strong. So it's all set up that inflation could happen. That'll be the great debate. But I think we have to get further into the question of what is transitory. So, so, Brian, the one thing that seems clear after the Fed has spoken is that we are changing sort of the dynamic. Uh, we were on a loosening phase. We're now going to start tightening. It's not clear when or how, how fast we are going to start tightening. What does that do to Bank of America's business at its core? And let's start, if we could, with trading. I mean, we've heard from a couple of your rivals here that trading's down in the second quarter. Where are you in the second quarter? But could this cause volatility, the tightening, that could help your trading? Well, let's go back to the, you know, our economist, project, economist projections are that the economy this quarter will be about the same size it was heading into the pandemic, which means that you're sort of restored. Differently constituted with shortages in supply, labor, unemployment not where we want, spending that's migrated from panic to sort of do it yourself and now to go out and eat and things, restaurants spending up dramatically, you know, travel back to where it is. All that means the economy continues to grow. In terms of trading, it, you know, there's always a seasonality between the first quarter and the second quarter, and we're no different than other people. But the reality, if you really think about it, is volatility helps the trading group. But frankly, from a Bank of America perspective, you'd rather have the economy growing at a solid rate, unemployment down, because end of the day, that means great for the core business. That means great for the uh, capital for markets formation activity, uh, less you know, emergency and more normalized. And also, it means great for loan demand. And loan demand, we're seeing start to pick up slowly as we move through the months of April, April, May, and June, which is better than it was obviously last fall or coming into the early spring. So, so Brian, if I understood you correctly, it sounded like you're sort of along with your rivals there on trading the second quarter, which should come down. Am I understanding that correctly? If the market moves, you know, we all maintain our market share, it kind of moves together. So I, I, there's nuances that we'll, you know, we'll get into, but when we get to the earnings and figure out what happens the last few weeks here, but, you know, we're not going to be a heck of a lot different from other people. Uh, so, so that uh, raises the question of, okay, what does it do to the rest of your business? Particularly if we're into a tightening phase, as I say, doesn't know, don't know how long it'll take. Tightening phase, what does that do to things like net interest margin? Well, that interest margin, the deposit balance is a huge, and that's due to the amount of fiscal stimulus that went in the system and the amount of monetary accommodation. So the deposit balances are high. 
the loan, the, the good thing about the business is half our money comes from the spread, deposits and loans, and you're starting to see those loans stabilize as we came through the first quarter and start to grow this quarter at a modest pace. But our credit card balances, you know, fell from $90 billion to $70-odd billion, and that's, those are the kinds of things that indicate the customer is still getting back in the game. Our middle market draw rate on lines went from the 40s to the low 30s. That's slower than we've ever seen it. It's stabilized there and starting to move out. You know, so I think we're in the, the, what I call the twist of both rates and economy, that you're seeing economy normalized and rates move up. Rates moving up helps our business, but if they're moving up the wrong reason, it doesn't help our business. So the good, good thing for Bank of America is when the U.S. economy and the world economies are growing on a fundamental basis as we look forward. Rates are moving up, but let's be frank, it's pretty modest still as a practical matter. And, and let's also be honest, the Fed continues to buy those bonds, which means there's more stimulus coming into the marketplace. Is there demand for the loans? Because the problem doesn't seem to be the interest rates. It's more whether there's demand. Are you seeing demand from your customers? We are. We're seeing as we came to this quarter. Uh, so our small business originations in 2021 May were about 15, 20 percent of our small business originations in 2019 May, and that's uh, you know, it's finally crossed over in in various areas, and that's good. Now, again, it's still not where it was. Uh, we we fell from 900 and. $80 billion of loans down to $900 billion of loans, and it's moving up from there. But, but the reality is that loan growth is actually the core business. That means the core in the line economy is going well, and, and we expect that to continue. And if you think from the first quarter to the fourth quarter, you'll see that growth in deposits continue. You'll see that growth in loans continue, and that's good for banking generally and, and, and us in particular. But, but at the end of the day, we are in the part of the process where you're seeing companies need to hire, need to get goods to sell, need to get goods to manufacture, and that's because a 7% growth rate on an economy that is the size of the American economy is, you know, unprecedented. We, we haven't seen that in our lifetime. So think about that underlying activity. That'll be good for uh, Bank of America, be good for America, and that's what we've got to get focused on. Uh, Brian, give us a sense of how the pandemic might have changed your business when it comes to digital. As I understand, you've picked up a lot more digital users. Where is Bank of America right now? Well, the, the three things that happened in terms of digital in the pandemic, number one, consumer adoption continued to go, and by necessity, it rounded out. What I mean by that, we, we continue to grow consumer digital customers to 40.4 million active digital customers today. But what happened is the, the amount of sales went from, you know, 40-ish percent moving up to 60, 70 percent, and, and now it's settling in in a high 50, 60 percent. That is very good because that means there's efficiency and effectiveness of reach uh, of the market. But the, important, the second important thing was what had happened internally. Our ability to interact with customers, our ability to relate to customers. Think about it. Four or five quarters of record investment banking fees and customers couldn't we couldn't go see the customers due to the, to the pandemic restrictions so that ability to operate differently uh, is really important and the third thing is it went to various businesses so our wealth management business adoption rates went through the roof in our commercial businesses the cash pro mobile the numbers of users you know went up dramatically and the amount of activity went up dramatically and so you're seeing it round out through all the businesses that the adoption of digital etc the usage of digital is important and that gives us more flexibility to continue to manage expenses as well in our company. Well, talk about those expenses. Does that mean, as a practical matter, you could see your number of retail establishments go down? I think you're something like 4,300 now? 
Yeah, it, it's been coming down for years based on customer behavior. So it'll continue to uh, will continue to shape it. So yesterday, the day before, we opened in Kentucky for the first time in our history. So think about that. So we're opening new markets. We Columbus, Cleveland, Cincinnati, Indianapolis, Minneapolis, uh, Denver, Salt Lake City. Uh, and then now Kentucky, I'm trying to think where else we've gone, all have been open over the last three or four years. While we're shaping the distribution franchise and more markets have been in for 200 years uh, due to the fact that you know, the customer behavior changes. So we watch that carefully. In long term, we've had 6,000 branches at the high point, and now we're 4,300. During that time, the customer satisfaction has gone up, which means the digital and other means of operating have replaced that activity. And that's a relentless trend which we're continuing to work on. Brian, you've talked about the bounce back in consumer spending that you're seeing, and goodness knows you have contact with a lot of consumers. You've got some of your rivals, like Citi, uh, changing their credit standards on credit cards. We have J.P. Morgan really beefing up on marketing. Tell me about the competition over credit cards and what Bank of America is doing. Well, we've always taken a position in our credit card business. It's about our core customers and getting a customer in the wallet and getting it used by those customers through the reward systems that have. So we have the only all-company rewards. So if you have a preferred rewards, you get rewarded for your cards and your accounts of all types, and you get lower rates on your auto loans and stuff. So preferred rewards is a holistic rewards program. So we focus on the number one thing is the Great Bank of America uh, capabilities delivered to you, and a card is part of that. And so you're seeing that card origination pick back up. It fell probably by 70%. It's back now to about 30% lower than it was, and that's good for good news. Now, they've got a bar on them, and then they've got to pay us for borrowing on them, which, which takes some time. But the, the reality is it's a, it's a great business, and we like it. But it's part of our core consumer business. Checking accounts, Sorry. credit cards, auto loans, home loans. Be, be straightforward about it. Serve those customers well, and the team under Dean Athanasia does a great job with it. Finally, Brian, I know you said that you're hoping to get most of your people back into the offices by, I think, mid-September, you've talked about. Are you going to require them to be vaccinated? Have you decided? Right now, we're moving people back who are vaccinated, which we... Our, our team under Sherry Bronstein's leadership, our HR team, has done a fabulous job for us in terms of managing through this, uh, not, not with any playbook, but doing it because before nobody had this happen. They've done a great job. So we built a vaccine tool uh, three or four months ago and capture, voluntary capture. We have 70-plus thousand people, and it's worth concentrating getting them back to work because that allows people to move about under the CDC guidelines without masks and things like that. As more people get vaccinated, we keep bringing more back. We've got a lot of work to get those back. But the view is after Labor Day, our view is all the vaccinated teammates will be back and we'll be able to operate fairly normally. And we'll then start to make provisions for the other teammates as we move through the fall. Okay, Brian, thank you so very much for your time today. That's Brian Moynihan. He is the chairman and CEO of Bank of America. David Rosenberg joining us from uh, Rosenberg Research. Thrilled that he could join us. David Rosenberg slices and dices inflation dynamics truly like no one I know. David, we had Jan Hatzius of Goldman Sachs on. He and you are so much on the same page of a slide of GDP back to something normal at some point. If we get a Hatzius sub 3% GDP, what does that do to Rosenberg inflation? Well, look, I think that if the uh, economy slows down, uh, especially with the fiscal withdrawal we're going to be seeing in the second half of the year, uh, I think what happens uh, in traditional economic terms is the output gap starts to widen again. Uh, it's going to bring this inflation run-up we've seen uh, reverse course and should ultimately be very good news for uh, long-duration assets. So that's really what the story there is. But I'll just say, Tom, it was really, I think, less about the dots. The dots 
have no predictive Agreed. power if yeah. you look historically. There was the Fed taking this year's GDP growth from six and a half to seven percent. Because you know, when you look at what's baked in already for the first half of the year, the Fed's telling you that they're expecting fourth quarter growth to be close to five percent, which is up materially from what their implicit right, forecast right, was right. before. What do you have into 2022, though? They've got to get to two rate increases the year on, and so much of it depends on that level of GDP. Do we get back to a potential GDP under 2%? Do we go under 3%? What's your guesstimate? Well, you know, look, the Fed's over 3%. Uh, a lot of it depends on the, uh, the fiscal backdrop. Um, but I think the fiscal withdrawal is, is so enormous um, that you're going to have to have, I mean, the Fed is implicitly assuming that private sector demand is going to be over 6% next year. I am nowhere close to that. I think the economy is going to slow back below trend um, starting probably in the third or fourth quarter of this year. Um, so I'm back below potential growth for next year. Uh, and, uh, and as a result, I mean, that reinforces my view that inflation is going to come back down more than people think. David, do you think that the Fed is committing an error here? Uh, well, it's too early to say that. Um, you know, it's situational, and everything is really about you know now moving from you know moving from 2023, um, and so it's still a few years down the road to, to say the Fed's going to make a mistake right now. They haven't really done anything. I mean, they're talking about talking about tapering, which is maybe happening earlier than people thought, but they haven't done anything. They've just you know, laid Wait, okay, out I guess that, David, will it, be, will it be a mistake should they follow through on the median dot plot projection there of hiking rates twice in 2023? Well, I think it probably will be. But, you know, that's based on that's based on my assumptions. Uh, and uh, even on the FOMC, take a look. There's still a wide range of opinions. People look at the median dot plot. Not everybody is centered on the median. So uh, I'd say that they haven't made a mistake yet. Uh, I, I thought that it was uh, surprisingly either less dovish um, than, uh, you know, than I was certainly thinking about, but they, have, they haven't done anything yet. Uh, I mean, look, when you, you look at the dots when they were first introduced by Bernanke in early 2012, the funds rate was pressing against zero. For the next two years, the dot plot showed, you know, 0.75. They were going to hike rates three times. But we know with hindsight, they never did that. And I guess if they raised rates three well, times, it would have been a mistake, but they never carried through on the dots. So to say that they made a mistake, way too premature to say that right now. David, you, though, don't see the inflation, right? Uh, in your notes, you talk about 20% of uh, CPI gets all the attention, and that's up, but 80% of the index is not accelerating. And if the Fed is even thinking about raising rates, why would you like gold here? Well, look, I haven't been banging my fist on gold for, for months. Um, you know, it got dramatically oversold at the lows several months ago. Uh, it's backed up. <laughs> And now it's rolling over again. Uh, I mean, a lot of the gold analysts are saying we can correct all the way down to 1600 in the context of what could still be a secular bull market in gold. Nothing moves in a straight line. But, you know, you folks were talking earlier about the, the backup or less negative uh, results in real rates. Well, gold's got a time-worn uh, relationship with real rates. And if real rates back up here and the dollar continues to strengthen, then it's not just gold. Anything priced in U.S. dollars is going to take it on the chin, including most commodity prices. Uh, so for the time being, as long as real rates back up here, the dollar just broke above the 200-day moving average. Gold is going to remain under some near-term downward pressure. So to say that I'm bullish on gold right now, because I've been a secular bull on gold, right now I'd be saying you know, um, that the, the, the near-term risks are more to the downside. 
David Rosenberg, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it this morning. He's with Rosenberg Research. We'll have much more from Mr. Rosenberg in the coming days as he writes on inflation. Alan Ruskin with us now with Deutsche Bank, their chief international strategist. Alan, I, I look at where we are right now. Then what an interesting press conference yesterday. And I've really got to ask you about this phrase, substantial further progress. We're making a joke about it. But on a theoretical basis, out of the textbooks you've used, what is substantial further progress? How do you define that? Well, Tom, I think what you saw yesterday was that the dual mandate is so important and that it's both uh, the progress you make on the inflation side, but also, you know, of course, the progress you make on the employment labor market side. And the market up until now has been emphasizing the labor market and the lack of progress there. But I think what you finally saw was recognition from the Fed on the importance of uh, the other side of the dual mandate, the inflation side. So, um, you know, it, it really depends on what you're looking at. Um, on the labor market side, I think even there, uh, Chairman Powell was very optimistic when he starts to speak about uh, the longer term view on, mm -hmm. uh, on the labor market. And when you look at the Fed's forecasts on the labor market, including an unemployment rate of 3.8% at the end of 2022, uh, around 4.5% at the end of this year, those are very, you know, uh, consistent with uh, substantial progress. The substantial progress could be a green light for other central banks, given your international purview. Did he green light other central banks yesterday to begin to nudge rates up as they choose? I don't think uh, other central banks are using this flexible average inflation targeting regime, certainly not in a religious way uh, that the Fed seemed to be up until yesterday. So uh, I think uh, there's no sort of green lighting per se. I think the Fed was standing out as really looking like the ultra dovish central bank within the G10 group. Um, I don't think it really changes things materially. What you are, however, seeing is that some of the central banks that were leaning to be you know, more on the hawkish side, like the Georgia's bank are now signaling that they will raise rates, not, not just uh, uh, taper, but actually raise rates in September. So you do have you know, some central banks that are well ahead of the uh, Federal Reserve. They were before yesterday and they are after, uh, after yesterday. We have seen uh, more central banks start to raise rates than cut rates. I think there have been 84 central bank actions globally this year. At the beginning of the year, um, there were more cuts, and now we're seeing that skewed towards hikes. Um, when are we going to see, though, the big ones uh, follow, or, 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 or is that the way it's going to be? Is the ECB really going to wait until after the Fed? Um, look, I think uh, the big ones are you know, holding back for the most part. I think the ECB is also, you know, obviously uh, said they're not going to taper through Q3. Uh, they're also on a, you know, this attempt to look at things and see how things are going to change. The Bank of Japan is uh, not looking at things for, you know, next three, four years, really, in a way. So they're very much on hold. Uh, the Bank of England maybe is a little bit more hawkish than the other central banks. Um, but I think, when you look at global markets, it's the Federal Reserve. I mean, we just saw it yesterday that, uh, um, you know, it's what the Federal Reserve does that's going to dictate, I think, on all asset prices. Lisa had a great piece out yesterday on Bloomberg Opinion about the financial risk that we're seeing, um, rate risk intertwined uh, with credit risk. And 
Today I saw a story on private equity. They've been um, pumping more leveraged loans onto the books of their companies um, than they have in the last 14 years because of these low rates. Is this a dangerous situation? Certainly for someone like myself, it tends to emphasize the uh, asset cycle is, you know, ultimately driving the business cycle. Um, there's, you know, plenty of signs of ebullience, really. And I think the Fed has been uh, very restrained, just to put it charitably, in terms of the way they've uh, spoken about, you know, the ideas of bubbles or bubblets, etc. So I think, you know, the, the example you cite on the leverage loan side, I think one could just look in terms of just some of the more orthodox measures, the most obvious being, you know, just uh, equity P ratios, just to say that, uh, yes, there are danger signs there. And, you know, it's not obviously just asset prices, but now that we've seen it in consumer prices, I mean, the danger is upon us, really, in a sense. So, um, I, you know, that, that behooves action. And I think the Fed did the minimum yesterday. So I want to talk a little bit about the market reaction. We did get an immediate knee-jerk increase in rates as the Fed took a more hawkish tilt. Makes sense. Today you're getting some buying, people coming in and seeing some opportunity. At what point does the international aspect of the bond market, the fact that if the U.S. does tighten, they look better uh, on a relative basis, their yields are higher, the dollar strengthens, people go into these bonds and yields go lower. How much, without the rest of the world moving, does the balance of motion go to the lower when it comes to bond yields, even with a more hawkish Fed? Well, Lisa, I mean, you know, we just have to think back to Q1, where the bond market was very much in the frame and the bears were, you know, uh, very much uh, taking up the running. And quarter two has been very, very different. And the dynamic there is different because on the supply side, the Federal Reserve uh, you know, has obviously been holding huge treasury balances that the treasury's now been running down. So the net issuance, particularly over the last couple of months, is going to be negative. So that supply side has been very helpful for the bond market. And then on the demand side, obviously got the Federal Reserve dominance sort of taking down, you know, it's close to say 60% of issuance uh, quarter by quarter. Uh, but on top of that, over the last few months, but you know, we really have got good data for March and April, foreigners stepped up their game as well. So now foreigners do seem to be interested in U.S. Uh, bonds and, uh, and Treasury bonds in particular when you see yields above 1.5%. So previously I thought, look here, the 10-year can easily get to 2.5%. Uh, you know, 2s, 10s, 250 basis points is not unusual. But I think what you're seeing in this low-yield environment is that foreigners will restrain the bond market. But quarter two has been a special because of the issuance side. So I think there's a, definitely a danger that when we get past this rundown of Treasury, cash balances, bond heels are going to start backing up in a more material way. That's really interesting, basically waiting for the taper to actually begin. Just to sort of wrap this all together, did anything change about your investing thesis after yesterday's Fed meeting? Yeah, I think things did change because the Fed has really been, you know, ultra, ultra dovish, really. And, you know, I still think they're dovish. I still think, you know, there's an argument that they should be finishing tapering at the time when they're starting to talk about tapering. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're still, uh, you know, dealing with an ultra dovish Fed, but I think they're catching up with the market. And the key element is, is the Fed behind the curve or not, or certainly behind the market? Because, you know, if they lag behind the market, then, for example, in the FX arena, the dollar will tend to be weak. If they catch up, and certainly if they're ahead of the market, then the dollar is strong. So, you know, we're at that cusp, really, when we're making up our mind just exactly where the Fed fits in relation to the marketplace. 
Ellen Ruskin, thank you so much. Greatly, greatly appreciate it uh, this morning with Deutsche Bank there. John Golub writes two and three page notes that are massively sector dependent and data dependent. And we're thrilled that he joins us this morning in his optimism. John Golub, I like what you say about high sales growth companies. It's a struggle. It's a it's a yin yang kind of thing there. Tell me about the substantial further progress of high sales growth companies. Well, I, you know, what we've seen is, is that the market has been a value driven market and growth is lagged, but if you look at kind of growth on steroids, these are companies with higher sales growth, not just higher earnings growth, they're really doing quite poorly and they remain expensive. So think about some of these more speculative companies. We think that they're going to, um, going to lag in the current environment. Right. And we continue to believe that even with the Fed saying what they did yesterday, that the value cyclical trade is going to work and the market's going to be strong. And what's great here on radio, you can't see it, but Golub, you know, forget about having the fancy bookcase behind you. Lisa Golub's got Henry Kissinger's magisterial world order behind him. That was my book of the year. I was a million years ago with two really prescient chapters on America. Still true today. So what's the world order going forward if you're going to have that tome behind your head? Uh, when it comes to a potential hawkish Fed, does it kill off some of the transformation that we've seen in equity markets, like increase in meme trading, like the increase in SPAC issuance? Well, Lisa, let, let's, let's put this in perspective. We know there's inflation everywhere. We had a 5% inflation print on CPI, a 6-plus uh, inflation print on PPI, and the Fed was acknowledging it. And they said, okay, we may have to raise rates in two years from now, at the end of 23, expectations of 60 basis points in, an, in, an, in a market that, or an economy that is on fire. If they didn't acknowledge um, what we're all seeing, I think they would have lost credibility. So yeah, they, you know, they, they took a little bit of our candy away. We were incrementally unhappy. We're 1% of all, off of all time highs. But I don't think that, that we're really changing this. This is still zero money. And, and unfortunately, I think that some of the speculative trades are gonna continue to work because it is still a very accommodative environment. All right, we'll go from the speculative to, I guess, uh, the more stable companies here, John. When we talk about uh, valuations in this market, there was an argument being made uh, last year and into this year here uh, that a lot of the highest valuations were actually assigned to some of the highest growth companies, at least on a revenue basis here. Is that still the case going forward? It, it is, and that was actually the point of that note that, that Tom was mentioning is that the market's expensive, but it's not the average company that's that's out of whack. It's really the, the stuff at the very top from a valuation perspective. And a lot of these things are very speculative in nature. Um, those stocks mm. we think are gonna be vulnerable, and uh, which is probably a good thing for investors who do the fundamental yeah. work and focus on the underlying earnings and cash flows and all that boring stuff. John Golub, uh, John from Coventry emails in. He says, would you guys stop talking and ask him what SPX is going to do? What's your standard reports target out one year? So, uh, we, have, you know, we have the highest um, target, according to the Bloomberg survey, at 4,600. Wow. That's a little bit less than 10%. That's pretty bullish. We think that earnings are going to be about 200. Wow. Um, which you know that that's a that's a big you know that that's a big yeah. number, but companies are beating 
really, really strongly yeah. are topping out. This is great, John. Send in more questions, Lisa. <laughs> Jonathan, there's a question of how far we can project this into the future. Are mm. we still bringing uh, the returns of the future to the present, or is this something that's sustainable with 10% uh, returns foreseeable for a number of years out for the S&P? You know, I think that was one of the, the, the challenges with the, the Fed report, that you were seeing a, a more of a dispersion of what the Fed governors were saying, because there's just so many unknowns on how this reopening is going to do. The real question is, when do we get to normal? Because then you would expect you know, your typical 8% return. I don't think we're going to get to normal from an equity perspective until the early to mid part of 2023. Mm -hmm. At that point in time, the Fed's probably already moved. Uh, at that point in time, GDP is already growing at 2% well, back in line with, with normal history. Between now and then, I think stocks continue to be on fire and value continues to win. John Golub, you've been killing it. Look at 12 months trailing market returns, folks, to know that John Golub at Credit Suisse has just absolutely nailed it there with a bold call out to 4,600 SPX. I'll triangulate and find out what that means for the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Eric Adams joins us, the mayoral candidate in the June 22nd primary. And this has a national, I should point out, really a national view as well as what we see. I was thunderstruck, Eric, and I don't know where you came in on this, but in the debate transcript I looked at, once again, the fancy suit and ties have a middle-class definition of 137000 income per year. And one of the candidates said, wait a minute, it's more like 54000 a year. Explain to me, if you are mayor, where your middle class is. Define middle class in your New York City. Well, and and that's, a, that's a moving uh, target. As I stated during the debate, uh, when you looked at the United Way's report, 40% of New Yorkers uh, have a sufficiency deficit. So if you have a family of four and you're making $150,000 a year and you're living in Park Slope, you, know, you are challenged to actually make ends meet. And there are many parts of the city where based on your income, your family, your rent and dealing with everything from student loans to uh, tuition, you know, it's a very difficult time for middle class New Yorkers. And we have decimated the middle class in the city and it's not throughout the entire country. Part of the decimation of the middle class is their fear of crime. Certainly, we've learned at Bloomberg in the last number of weeks, crime is front and center. Uh, there's a lot of people talking. Eric Adams, I would suggest, wore the blue, was a police officer. I want you to provide the distinction of your approach to NYPD versus the candidates who don't have your public service. And that's a great question, because uh, many of the candidates refused to talk about this real issue of crime. They wanted to look at public safety through the eyes of a bumper sticker or a slogan. Uh, let's be clear. The prerequisite to prosperity is public safety and justice. Uh, we're not going to recover as a city or a country if we don't get this crime under control. No one is going to come here as a tourist, a multi-billion dollar industry, if you have three-year-old children shot in Times Square. No one wants to ride our subways to get back into the office spaces if you're slashed or shoved to the subway system on the subway tracks. And so my goal is number one, get gun violence under control. We want to put in place a plain clothes anti-gun unit. We will zero in on gun and gang violence. 
use our gun suppression unit to really uh, collaborate together with our other agencies to identify who's using the guns, stopping guns from coming into our city. And then we must deal with our street homeless problem, uh, really dealing with the mental uh, health illnesses that we're facing. We're losing the quality of life. No one is going to stay in the city or build in the city if we're uh, viewed as a city that's not safe. Uh, certainly so, uh, uh, Mr. Adams. Obviously, a prerequisite to that prosperity is public safety. So is education here. A lot of folks want to know, how. what's your approach going to be with regards to the public school systems here, with regards to staffing, and more importantly, with regards uh, to the prosperity of our children? Well said. Well said. Listen, let me tell you the biggest embarrassment in this city uh, is uh, how we treat our children in education. Education is not K through 12. That's wrong. The neurologists and pediatricians would tell you education is pregnancy through profession. Uh, we must make sure that every area of education is handled right. Everything from nutrition uh, when mothers are pregnant uh, to the time that we give them the right tools they need in brain development, but also uh, the real embarrassment. 65% of black and brown children never reach proficiency in the department of education in the city. So one, we must return the joy of learning. Uh, in our schools. We must look into internships, externships, lean into vocational trainings, allow the business community, our tech and other industries yeah. to be part of the curriculum that we develop in our school systems. And then we must get technology in our schools, sure. access to Wi-Fi yeah. and all the tools our children need. And finally, our funding should not be based solely on what happens in a school building. Right. We need to look at the issues around the schools as well. Is your vision centered around the public school system, Mr. Adams? My vision is, is surrounding lifting up excellence. If that means charter schools, public schools, private schools, let's duplicate successful schools right. in our city and go across the country to do so. I got 45 seconds, Eric. How are you going to cut costs? How are you going to manage costs in a city where costs are unmanageable? Our city is dysfunctional as cities across America's uh, America because uh, they are. Uh, number one, uh, we're going to rein in a three to five percent uh, cut in all of our agencies. There's a lot of fat. We have a $20 billion increase in our budget. Uh, this is just too much waste and mismanagement. And we're not going to hurt those communities that were hardest hit uh, during COVID and even pre-COVID. Uh, this city is manageable. Taxpayers are doing their dollars, uh, are doing their, the right things by paying their taxes. It's time for us to do the right thing with government by using those dollars correctly. We're too expensive, <clears throat> too bureaucratic and too difficult to do business in this city. And that's going to change day one. He is from Brooklyn, Eric Adams. Thank you so much for joining us. June 22nd, the mayoral effort here with that very unique voting. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for Insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.